It's chaos. It's a different type of Sunday scary. It's your newest obsession. It's Dirty Driving, a Formula One podcast. We're the Hornsby sisters. I'm Katie. And I'm Megan. Hello, everybody. Hello, hello. Welcome back to yet another episode of Dirty Driving. We are in the middle of the summer break, so A, happy summer break. I hope everyone is surviving these long, dreadful three weeks without Formula One. And we are going to deep dive on another team because why not? And we are almost done with the 10. I believe this is seven. Oh, no, this is eight, team eight. eight. So, yeah, we're just chugging along and happy summer break. Yeah, this week we're going to focus on Williams. And this is a deep dive that should have arguably been the easiest to put together, to research. It's in fact like been the hardest one because there is truthfully just so much to talk about Williams. And it's kind of impossible to decide which direction you want to go because obviously we don't have time to talk about the entire history of Williams F1 team and all of its name iterations, all of its years of success, but also years of failure. There's so many players we could talk about really truthfully, Sir Frank Williams for probably entire seasons. I think every documentary I've seen has not even fully covered. They've had to take stuff out, but you could probably, I would argue that you could probably spend a whole episode talking about Claire Williams. You could talk about Virginia Williams, which Katie and I read a book about. Her take on the whole history, her whole experience as being like mother, <laughs> a mother figure to the team. But um, so this one, we're definitely going to, we've shrunk it down. We've taken just the, a little subsection of Williams. And of course, we're going to bring you all of the content about Alex Albon and um, our Nutella loving Nicholas Latifi. Yeah, I would say when I was, you know, doing my research for this episode, it helped that we had read that book that Virginia Williams wrote. And uh, I watched a couple documentaries as well, but It's insane to me how long Williams has been in F1, how many seasons, not like seasons as in seasons of F1, but seasons of change that they've been a part of, and to see them still on the grid. I desperately miss Claire Williams being on track. I think she was just a shining star for all women who want to get involved in F1 or are already involved in F1. It was kind of hard, like, putting this episode together and knowing that we weren't going to talk about, you know, like, spend the current years talking about Claire. Um, So, yeah, I'm excited to talk about Williams. I think they have definitely been through the ups and downs that Formula One has to offer. Yeah, no, they, I think they sparked my interest in the beginning because they were like the ball and on a budget team and you couldn't help but want them to have a glimmer of success, even if that success was making it to Q3. Like, to me, that was like a celebration for Williams. I watched a documentary today on YouTube. It's called Williams F1 in the Blood um, or F Formula One in their blood, in the blood. I'm not sure which 
which it is, but you can find it on YouTube. And there's this part where Claire is celebrating like a podium win way back in the early, I don't remember which year it is. They celebrate, well, first they celebrate Pastor Maldonado's win at the 2012 Spanish Grand Prix. And then they also showed a clip of Claire celebrating a podium win. And I, I just feel for them. Like, I love that about them is that they're, they are, are a team that have had success. They had success in the 1990s and they haven't, you know, won a championship since 1997 with Jocksville Nouve. So you can see that like any glimmer of success, even of George Russell P2 in a dumpster fire of a spa Grand Prix or a Belgian Grand Prix. I call it the spa Grand Prix now because they were in the rain, literally at a different version of a spa. But, like, to them, that's celebration. I mean, I understand why they celebrated why Nicholas Latifi was in Q3 at the at Silverstone this year. To them, that is success. And I think you can't help but root for a team like that. Even if I have some issues with what's been going on at Williams. <laughs> yes. Issues, to say the least, which I know we're going to talk about later on in this episode, particularly those revolving around said Nutella-loving driver, but we'll save that for later. <laughs> yeah, they, they've been, since we followed F1, they have been in a sh- in the shitter, I think is the proper way of pronouncing what they've done. They've had no money. In fact, in that documentary is the scene where Claire Williams is like, yeah, we, we have like $100 million or a hundred um, million sterling. They're talking about the pound, the British money. But she says that and I'm like, that's nothing when you look, when you think about what a Mercedes budget is. And so you understand why they've been in the shitter. In 2018, they ended P10 with only seven points. That was the last year that Stroll was on the team. I always forget that the Stroll family was a part of it. Um, TV to that one time he did really well in Baku. Um, And then in 2019, we had only one point for the team and they ended up in last. That was Russell and Kubica. And then in 2020 is the worst year that they've ever had in history. They had zero points. Zero. Goose egg. Nothing. Nada. Zilch. Zero. And when I say it was literally the worst year in in their history, I mean, like, literally, you can't be worse than having zero points in last. You don't get negative points. No. In F1. It would be funny. But um, that was the year of Latifi and Russell. And then last year in 2021, which is weird to say that it feels like 2021 was three years ago. But in 2021, they had 23 points at the end of the year in P8. The only teams behind them were Alfa Romeo and Haas. So, I mean, I guess that's a little bit of a (laughs) consolation. They weren't last last year. But really, that was a big hit from, I mean, that was really boys bolstered by that sort of looking for by George Russell's 16 points that he scored last year, primarily that P2 in Belgium. Also Hungary was a good, good time for them last year. Um, So yeah, I think that it's been a ride being a fan of F1 and actively watching races and seeing Williams. And now I think we have to, we we have some questions we have to like really dissect, like, can Williams be a, a midfield team and B can they ever get back to this 1990s success? Their ownership, the new ownership clearly believes they can, or they wouldn't have invested the money to buy the team and keep the brand. 
do we think that they can get there? I, I really don't know. Even know if I want to say yes or no to that. I don't know what the, I don't know what they're actually capable of right now. Part of me believes that there is hope, and part of me believes that there is no hope. Uh, it's it's definitely a tricky situation when. Last year, we saw some of that good hope of not being in last place, of, you know, new ownership, excitement. But this year, I was expecting a bigger difference, especially with the new regulations and the changes and hopefully, you know, the idea of it making the whole grid competitive Unfortunately, we just haven't quite seen that yet. It's sad to say, but I really didn't think that they would be anywhere else but last. Like, I wanted them to be, but I didn't really expect them to be anywhere but in the back of the pack. I think that's because the budget really hasn't caused the front runners to suffer yet. The whole point is, like, the budget would be what brought them closer, and they're still clearly a ballin' on a budget team. In terms of their performance. And really, I expected a lot from Alex Albon. We're seeing that. So it's interesting. Like, I just didn't expect them to be... Maybe I didn't expect them to be last. But I can't really say I expected them to be any higher than P8. Yeah, well, when... Excuse me for saying this so soon and so early on. But I feel like when half the team is dead weight. As in, like, one of the drivers appears to, gives off the feeling of dead weight. There's not much you can ask for from them. I don't know. Maybe that's harsh of me to say. We'll have to see. (laughs) We'll see what we conclude at the end of this episode. All right. Well, I was blessed to talk about Alex Albon this episode, and he's Most well known for his quick stint at Red Bull and then his fiery red hair return to F1 this year. Alex Albon has never been one of my favorites. I can't tell you why. I just feel like uh, he's rubbed me the wrong way. I was disappointed in his performance at Red Bull. But learning more about him and seeing his change in attitude and overall I think racing ability this year has granted me some good wishes for Alex Albon so I'm becoming more of an Alex Albon stan he was born in London in 1995 I believe to Nigel Albon a former British racing driver who participated in the British Touring Car Championship and the Porsche Carrera Cup his mother and forgive my pronunciation of this, Kankamol is from Thailand. And so something that's really cool about Alex is that he is dual citizenship in both Brit or has British citizenship and Thai and a citizen of Thailand. And he actually races under the Thai flag. So he was allowed to choose um, which one he wanted to race under. And he chose Thai. So he started competitively racing in karts in 2005 at the age of eight. So a little older than what we've seen in other drivers. And he actually won his local Hoddleston championship. 
The following year, he started racing in the cadet class, finishing first at the Super One National Honda Cadet Championship. And then the following year, he placed second in the same championship. In, 28, in 2008, excuse me, he moved up to the KF3 class where he stayed until 2010, so spent time there. And he won plenty of championships. I'm not going to list them all out, but he won more than five different championships throughout those years. In 2011, he actually graduated to KF1, placing second in the WSK Euro Series and second at the CIK FIA World Championship. So had a lot of experience within karting and a lot of different championship sessions. But let's really talk about his path to F1 because in 2012, he graduated to Formula Renault 2.0 Euro Cup Series where he drove for Epic Racing and he finished 38th out of 49, having a tough year and not scoring any points. So the transition up wasn't an easy transition at first. However, the next year he joined the KTR team to race in the Euro Cup Formula One, Formula Renault 2.0 season and finished 16th out of 36. So we saw some impressive growth from year one to year two. And he actually took fastest lap at the Red Bull ring, which, you know, he was a Red Bull driver later on. So I don't know. I thought that was kind of cute that his first fastest lap in pole was at the Red Bull ring. In 2015, Albon switched to the European F3 racing with the signature, che- signature team finishing seventh overall with two pole positions and five podiums. In 2016, he raced for the GP3 for art, claiming four wins and finished runner up to Charles Leclerc. And I love when I read about their journey to Formula One and I like start the timeline in my head of who raced with who and who competed with who because it just reminds me that they have been driving together for far many more years than just that we've seen them race together in Formula One. And in 2017, he graduated to the FIA F2 championship with the same team, Art. And he actually missed the Baku round due to a broken collarbone from a mountain biking training ride, but came back for round five, still with his collarbone broken, and finished 10th in the Drivers' Championship this first F2 season, scoring 86 points. So um, it might seem silly that I wanted to include that little fact that he came back and raced with a broken collarbone. But I think, again, that just shows how committed Alex is to the sport and how committed he was to getting back into the car. In 2008, Dam's team announced that they had signed Albon for a season-along partner, Nicholas Latifi. So actually, these two have been partnered in previous years. And he took his first win after taking pole in Baku. He actually had a stall in the grid in the last race in Abu Dhabi, which ended his title chances, leaving him third in the championship behind both George Russell and Lando Norris. And here's another little interesting quip for you that I did not know until I started doing my research on Alex, but he was actually signed by Nissan for their Formula E team in the for the 2018-2019 season, but was released at the start of the season to move over to F1 and drive for Toro Rosso, starting his Formula 1 days. 
So Alex is relationship with Red Bull, which ended seven years prior after he was a part of the junior driver program for a little bit, was restored upon driving to or signing to drive with Toro Rosso for that 2019 season, becoming just the second Thai driver to compete behind Prince Bira, who competed in 1954. In 2019, he started the season with Toro Rosso, but after the Hungarian Grand Prix, Red Bull announced that Alex would be replacing Pierre Gasly from the Belgian Grand Prix onwards and that Pierre would be switching back to Toro Rosso. And Red Bull at the time stated that the team would use the next nine races to evaluate Alex's performance in order to make an informed decision about who was going to drive alongside Max in 2020. We all know that Alex went on to race for a second year with Red Bull before he was replaced in 2021. But in 2019, he ended up finishing eighth in the Drivers' Championship with 92 points and received the Rookie of the Year award. So I think it's also insane to think back to those times of watching and seeing a rookie drive for Red Bull because that seemed out of the picture with Daniel Ricciardo leaving and Max Verstappen. I I know that they always, you know, choose a rookie to make them and help them grow up, but it seemed weird um, in the moment to me. No, it, I don't think it's weird at all. That's literally their MO. It's weird that they brought in Checo. Yeah, that okay. is the anomaly. Maybe that's maybe I'm thinking incorrectly, but um, I don't know. It was it was just weird for Alex Albon. Um, I, that whole situation is weird, and I'm not going to go down the rabbit hole of me starting to complain about that. But um, I think just the switch of choosing Pierre Gasly, who had been in Formula One and then replacing him with a rookie um, when they were, you know, looking for that strong second driver to stand up to Max, I think maybe is um, where it felt weird. Maybe not that he was, you know, a rookie, but they did, I, I don't know. I think that's their that's their history, though. Like they ditched Daniel Kvyat to bring up Max Verstappen. They do that all the time. They're just like, let's ditch one and find another. They're the most toxic team of just like dumping a driver and find be like, we'll just put somebody else in there and hope that this works. <laughs> yeah. It's literally their toxic mentality. And if you like, seriously, we should have all seen it coming with Pierre Gasly. They fucking did it to Kvyat. <laughs> yes, you're right. You're right. You're correcting me. And I appreciate that because you're right. She loves to hear she's right. So. I like to tell her, too. <laughs> All right. So in 2021, that was the year that he was demoted to the role of test and reserve driver for Red Bull. And his seat, like Megan said, was taken by Sergio Perez. He took on a coaching role for Yuki Sonoda, actually starting at the 2021 Turkish Grand Prix. So he shifted from being an active driver to being somewhat of an advisor to Yuki and also just present on race days and, you know, sitting as that reserve driver in case there were any issues that needed to come up. But during this time, he actually participated in DMT, which is a grand touring car series based in Germany, and it's modified version of Group GT3 grand touring cars. He participated in 14 of the 16 races and won his maiden DMT race at the Nuremberg Ring, becoming the first Thai driver to win a DTM race. So 
um, kept himself busy during that season off. And I recently read an article where uh, Capito was talking about how I think he said, I think adding Albon is the best that we could have happened to the team. But what he was underestimating, what Capito was underestimating was what he had gained in a year outside of the car. And as he worked with Red Bull, as he was at most of the races and seeing how the interaction of the driver and the team is, he was better suited to come back and understand how to communicate as a driver to the team and and how drivers can impact the team, which is normally something that Capito says that a driver doesn't always understand. So I think when I look at the history of Alex Albon and the shitty circumstance of being pulled up to Red Bull before he was ready and then underperforming at Red Bull and then being replaced by Sergio Perez. I feel like coming back and having a spot at Williams where he can get resituated as an F1 driver and really start to make impacts within the team and, you know, be driver number one compared to his partner. I'm very, very, very excited to see what next year Alex Albon has to show us. And we could be in for something good once this year of warm-up is back, is over with. And they maybe find somebody who can help them build a car. (laughs) Yes. It's all contingent on that. Like... I'm just afraid he's going to get stuck there and is going to be at the shit Williams for his entire career and is never going to get a chance out of it. Out of it, yeah. Which is probably de- going to happen. <laughs> yeah, he's definitely – it's wild when you think about, like, that there are only six top driver spots if you consider the top three teams and how some of these drivers are just there on these teams with – Shit cars, shit teammates, and that's just what their career is going to be. It almost says the supporting role of Formula One. I think that's maybe just what happens when you want to make a million dollars and drive a fast car, but you're not, you know, the next <laughs> Charles Leclerc or Lewis Hamilton. You sit there, you make a shit ton of money, you drive the car fast, and But that's why, like, a lot of teams say that their goal isn't P1. They know that's not attainable. The goal is making it to Q3 and getting some points, which is fine, you know, if that's what your plan is. But I understand people like Sebastian Vettel, who is a four-time world champion at Red Bull and then is at Aston Martin, is like, look, I don't enjoy going for P9. Or P10, really not even P9, P10. Like, <laughs> I don't want to scrap for one point. I'm used to scrapping for a championship. And the championship. And so you temper your expectations. I don't think Lewis Hamilton would be thrilled to be like, well, my my post-Mercedes career is at Williams going for <laughs> Q3. Like, it's not ever going to be Lewis's dream, but that's because he's been to the mountaintop, you say. Like, Nicholas Latifi, who we're about to talk to next, who every time I say the name, May rolls her eyes. I'm <laughs> estimating, but she seems particularly unthrilled that I have to talk about Nicholas Latifi next. And look, I was pretty unhappy when I realized that I personally picked Nicholas Latifi to talk about 
she did. Not my greatest moment. But I will fully say that I'm learning about him. I wouldn't say that I have come to find him particularly interesting. I haven't come to find some like nugget of hidden gem to talk about Nicholas Latifi and to be like, hey, he's really interesting. Everyone care about me. But I do. The one thing I did find and I've come to understand is why he even ended up in F1 to begin with, which for me has always kind of been in the back of my head. Like, you know, I can look back and understand, you know, the mechanics of him getting into F1. But really, like, why is he here and why is he stuck around? So that's been the nugget I've taken from all of this is this greater understanding of the role that our Nutella-loving groundhog-killing <laughs> had to throw that in there in Canada from this past year. But the goat Tifi himself, who has truly been, like, literally at the back of the grid and the butt of all the jokes. Literally the goat Tifi meme that Will Buxton even referenced is A, painful, and B, amazing at the same time. It's a dichotomy that I can't work through in my head. And I will fully admit, I've said this before, I didn't love him. I found him kind of boring. I truthfully did. You know, you would see him in press conferences. He just kind of gets through it as kind as possible. But like I said, I have come to realize and have, dare I say, an appreciation? Whoa. Not so much for him. I don't know if I'm, uh, this is a stretch. I'm really struggling right now. Okay, I have an appreciation for the role that he's played at Williams for two years. I think that that role is over, but I have come to appreciate his wingman status to George Russell. And now his unfortunate wingman status to Alex Albon. (laughs) Okie dokie. So in terms of Nicholas Latifi's existence in F1, it feels a lot longer than it actually is for some weird reason. It's almost like a cold that won't go away, that just like lingers. Um, That's Nicholas Latifi. He has had 52 Grand Prix starts. Yes, that number did shock me. His highest grid position was P10. That was this year, Silverstone, when he made it to Q3. And I literally thought I was hallucinating. I will admit I wasn't on painkillers for my finger surgery at that point, but I did think I was hallucinating. Maybe it was a lack of caffeine. His highest race result is P7. Again, thought I was hallucinating, and then I remembered Hungary last year. But in total, in total, I'm sorry, I'm laughing through this. I shouldn't be. That's not respectful. That's very rude. I certainly apologize to Mr. Nutella himself. Sofina Foods Jr., he has seven points in F1. Seven. I bet a million dollars that I don't have that Mick Schumacher will leave this year of F1 with more points than Nicholas Latifi has in his career. Career. Okay. I think that, yeah. We're going to go with it. Yeah. A million dollars that I don't have. I love this. It's Monopoly money. It's fake money. It's imaginary money. But it was so funny, Katie, when you mentioned that Alex Albon started karting late. (laughs) Nicholas Latifi is, I think, the current driver who started the latest in his life. He started karting at the age of 13, which is essentially ancient. 
And again, I'm still pissed at my parents for not forcing me to be into carding. You had up until the age of 13. There was a lot of opportunity. You clearly failed it. Mom, I'm putting it in the book. (laughs) Nonetheless, 11 years later, he's a Formula One driver. Blows my mind. 11 years. If he can do it, I probably can't do it because I'm not the heir to a food production company. Meh. So, nonetheless, he starts at the age of 13, and in 2012, we're going to fast forward, he moved to Europe. He moved to Europe to, you know, continue into single-seater. There he was in F3, he was in Formula Run 3.5, he was in GP2, and he was in F2. I'm just going to speed ahead, because this is the part of Nicholas Latifi that is actually fascinating to me. Is So, 2018, he's in F2. That is the year that George Russell was the F2 champion. Lando Norris came in P2nd that year. Alex Albon was P3 and Nick DeVeers was P4. So 2018, Nicholas Latifi is in F2. He gets outperformed by those four. He ends the year in P9. Ugh. 2018 was an overall massive step back from him. He was fighting to change his and adapt his driving style, his racing style. He was teammates with Alex Albon, like Katie mentioned, who was fighting for the championship. Ultimately, we get his ticket to F1. But really, 2018 was like the, the the dip in his F2 performance and is the beginning of the story of why he even got into F1. Because the next year in 2019, he ends the year P2 in the championship behind Nick DeVeers, who won. He had four wins and eight podiums. So this massive shift from being in the shitter in P9 behind people that he would race with a against in not with against in f well with and against because he was teammates wow with and against can't get my like grammar correct today um from that horrible year which i'm gonna call a horrible year 2018 his massive dip to the 2019 and that was a massive massive part of why he got the call up to williams into 2020 it's because he was able to overcome that disaster he was able to take you know, a year of struggling and turn it into a year of success. I think ultimately, I can't fully say this, but there had to have been some part of the Williams team, Claire Williams, that was like, well, maybe (laughs) he can take a bad team that he wasn't on and bring it to some success alongside George Russell. But there was more to him coming to Williams than just that. A or B, we'll put a is his ability to overcome disaster. B is he'd actually been a test driver for Williams. So he had had multiple F1 practice sessions. So he was familiar with the machinery. B, C. Wow. I don't know my letters along with not knowing my grammar. C, I'm going to say it's right time, right place. And truthfully, I think that is the answer to most of the reason why X driver gets the spot over Y driver. It's right time, right place, contracts, negotiations. It's not so much, it is obviously talent, but at that level, like, you know, there there were many options potentially for Williams, but it was the right time and the right place for Nicholas Latifi. At the end of 2019, the Williams-Cubitza relationship was falling apart, so it was an easy path for test driver Nicholas Latifi to pop in and say, I'm going to be George Russell's teammate. With that comes the fact With that comes number D or letter D. Fourth reason is that 
Claire Williams was looking for someone with George Russell's personality. And Nicholas Latifi and George Russell had a very similar personality. It was one that was positive. It was friendly. It was motivational. And that's what Williams needed. I literally said at the onset of this episode that 2019 saw the team with one point. So, you know, they're looking for motivation. They're looking for a driver to be able to come in, step into this position, and not just be a Debbie Downer, but be willing to, like, uplift the team at any opportunity they possibly could. The best explanation of that is that I'm stealing this from some article that I read, and I'm so sorry, I don't remember which article it was. It might have been Claire Williams saying it. I'm not sure. Don't quote me on this. But basically, they wanted two Russells in the car. They wanted not necessarily Russell's driving style, but they wanted his personality to motivate Williams. Additionally, additionally, I'd like to add in, this is E and F, that there were monetary reasons. And I'm going to give letter E, the fifth reason to be monetary. His father owns Sofina Foods, willing to invest millions of dollars into the team. And F is also going to be monetary reasons because he came with sponsorships, Sofina Foods and Lavazza, which is the Italian coffee that my aunt and uncle introduced us to a long time ago. So there were a lot of kind of reasons, but it all culminated into like right time, right place. He gets the call up. He's on Williams. And really, this is probably the best career move and the worst career move for him. Like right timing for him to end up in Formula One, but the worst timing considering he is teamed up with George Russell. And he spent two years at Williams being cast behind the shadow of George Russell and that's really just the most unfortunate thing to happen because not only was he joining the team at a time when George Russell had just outperformed his veteran Grand Prix winning teammate, Robert Kubica, he would then go on to be outperformed by George Russell at basically every opportunity except for Hungary last year. And that's rather unfortunate for Nicholas Latifi. So, at the end of all of this, I, I don't really want to go through the stats of the last two years. I think it's enough for me to just say, like, he was heavily outperformed by George Russell in those two years. George Russell leaves at the end of 2021 to go to Mercedes, which he had rightfully earned. And this was going to be 2022 would be the year that essentially Nicholas Latifi could actually perform. And... I'm going to leave his story there because I think we're going we're gonna to circle back to it at the end. I want to do a deep dive on, you know, where does Latifi stand with Williams? But truthfully, his path to F1 was helped by his backing, financial backing. But it was right timing, right place. But ultimately, I think it was the worst timing, worst place for him because he was constantly compared to George Russell. And now... That he's not with Russell. He's constantly being compared to his new teammate, Alex Albon. And it just shows that he's just not really a good driver. And I think he hid last year. I fully think that he hid last year because every all of us were so focused on how awful Nikita Mazepin was. That he got another... Like, it was like a little distraction. None of us could really look at Latifi because we were focused on how good George Russell was doing and how awful Nikita Mazepin was doing. So he skated by and now this year he can't really hide. Yeah. Megan and I talked about that at the beginning of the season. I think we were what two races in maybe three. And we came to that conclusion of 
he's actually awful. He's the only driver to not score a point this year. And he started P10. In a race. There's some other reasons, you know. He qualified on wet tires. Then the race wasn't a wet race. I get it, I get it, I get it. There's reasons. But all I'm saying is, Alex Albon is taking a shit box and scoring some points. And Nicholas Latifi is in the back crashing. We're fully going to do a deep dive on 2022. I'm setting it up. I'm I'm teeing it up now. (laughs) I'm teeing up my anger now. This podcast is brought to you by Racing Thread, Formula One clothing for any occasion. Their clothing features subtle, evocative, embroidered designs for your favorite F1 moments. From Ricardo's Monza Shoei to Sebastian's Australian scooter ride. From Lewis's Brazilian comeback to Carlando's round of golf. Whether you're out to dinner with friends, watching the race at home, or cheering in the grandstands. Gone are the embarrassing sponsor logos. Instead, Racing Thread is F1 clothing you are comfortable wearing anywhere. Right now, Dirty Driving listeners can get 15% off Racing Thread's entire range of t-shirts, sweatshirts, and polos using the code DIRTYDRIVING. That's DIRTYDRIVING, all capitals, no spaces, for 15% off their entire clothing range. Head over to RacingThread.com to shop F1 Racewear for anywhere. But before we get into 2022, I think it's important that... You know, it's a team deep dive. We need to start at the beginning. So we all know that Williams F1 is a steadfast name in Formula One. I think it's an integral part of Formula One history. I think I'll, pretty much everyone would agree with me on that fact. There is a gigantic flashing sign reason why Dorrington Capital decided to put their money into the team. And it's because the value of the team is the name. It's why they haven't changed the name. It's not Dorrington Capital F1 team or it's not DCF1. It's Williams Racing still. And that value in that name comes from the years, the history, the legacy that was built by Sir Frank Williams. I'm going to say this now. I'm probably going to say it about five times as I talk about the history of the F, um, as I talk about the history of Williams F1. If you haven't read books on Williams, if you haven't watched documentaries, literally, after this episode, finish listening to it first. Google documentary on, F1, on Williams F1 and watch anything you can. The way, the one I watched, Williams Formula One in the Blood, was great. Katie and I have read Williams, A Different Kind of Life about Virginia Williams. On my list is um, a book that focuses on like Sir Frank Williams's view of it, not his wife's view of the team and his the team's history. I am fascinated by it. Um, And I could probably do a 15-part series about Williams. So today we're going to kind of focus on some of the key players. But once this is over, take the time, look it up, and get a book, watch a documentary. Because it truly is fascinating. I don't think I've ever learned or read or studied, researched anybody who is more committed to their passion than Sir Frank Williams. The team was founded in 1977, like I said, by Sir Frank Williams and his partner, Sir Patrick Head. Williams F1 truly represents the last true independent today team that today is not so independent. So they were the last steadfast, not 
run by a corporation team until 2020, which was so sad. It was really a massive blow to the sport. Want to see Claire Williams step back as she is just a powerhouse, someone I admired, still do, but she was kind of one of the reasons I was so interested in Williams when I first started watching F1. But beyond that, they are, it was sad to see just like an independent family run business sell to a giant corporation. I hate to talk about that because I literally work for a corporation and, you know, I hate being part of corporate America, but it was sad to see that little bit of independence leave. I think it was a blow to the sport and I don't know. After 43 years of the Williams family controlling the team, it was an end of an era. But like I said, it was built by those two fine gentlemen. And really, it was built on their love of motorsport and really Sir Frank Williams' utter determination to not, not succeed. (laughs) Double negatives for Sir Frank Williams there. Since their first Grand Prix victory at Silverstone in 1979, they have 114 Grand Prix victories. They have 128 pole positions. They've won nine constructors. Nine. 1980, 1981, 1986, 87, 92, 93, 94. Great year. 96 and 97. They have won the drivers seven times in 80 when they won both with Alan Jones in 82 with Keith. Keith, I'm laughing. I can't even get his first name out before I giggle. Kiki Rosberg. Our buddy old pal Nico's father in 87 with Nelson Piquet. Mm-hmm. I'll just make that mm-hmm. not comment beyond that. In 92 with Nigel Mansell, the year they won both as well. Mansell actually, this is so cool. He won the first five races of the season and at the end of the season left for IndyCar. I thought that was cool. I like him. I think he's really cool. We also got to see his car go around the track this year, which was one of his old FWs. I don't remember which year it was. Maybe it was the 92. I don't know. Don't quote me on that. In 93, we saw Alan Prost win. It was his fourth driver's championship, and then he would announce his retirement. This year, they won both. Then in 96, Damon Hill won. They won both that year. And then in 97, Jacques Villeneuve won both as well. Led the team to both. The team won both, whatever. Um, But that was the last year that they've won a championship was 97. So before Katie Rose Hornsby was even alive. That is an that accurate statement. <laughs> to put that into perspective. It has been 24 long years, 25 long years. The last time they won a race was 2012, the year I graduated high school. Yes, that disgusted me when I realized that. It was <laughs> Esther Maldonado who won the, the Barcelona Grand Prix. And the last time they podiumed was last year with George Russell. But I don't really know if that counts. Uh, <laughs> I guess technically in the rule book it does count, but it still hurts my soul. So, like I said, we could talk about Williams for hours and hours and hours, but the content of this entire season's deep dive on Williams is to talk about the key players. So we're going to talk through Sir Frank Williams and Sir Patrick Head. And in the middle, we're going to talk about Claire Williams because we can't have an episode without her. And then we're going to talk about the key players now, specifically Dorrington Capital. The fact that there's a freaking royal connection that it took this long for me to realize, I know. I don't know why I didn't figure it out. Maybe because I went through a series where I was like not learning about the royal family or not trying to learn about them. And then ultimately end with today's CEO, Jost Capito, who is an intriguing fellow. I'm going to go with intriguing. Intriguing. That's a great way to put it. Eccentric. I'm going to go with 
intriguing, unique, eccentric, which I think are technically all synonyms of in kind of each other, but still. Nonetheless, we must, of course, begin with Sir Frank Williams. Williams exists and it's and it has its legacy because of this one man's determination, commitment and unyielding passion for the sport. That's it. Full stop, period. And you can you can end the episode there. <laughs> Done. Deep dive complete. Obviously not. But I'm just saying like that that is the story at Williams. It is all because of really, truly his dedication. I hate to like kind of go back to some of his sad moments, but I have to go back to some of the sad moments. So in 1996, Frank Williams Racing Cars was founded by Sir Frank Williams before he was a sir. In 90, no, in 1969, 69, he graduated to Grand Prix Racing with Piers Courage as their driver. Courage finished second two times that year in that season. In 19, we're going to, we're going through this quick, guys. We're going through it quick because I don't want to give you a full, I mean, like I said, eight episodes. We'd still be on like Frank Williams before he even had a racing team. So then in 1972, he ran their actual first F1 cars that were built by like the Williams Works team. (sighs) But unfortunately, Henry... Henri, their driver, crashed it and destroyed it in its first race. So then we fast forward again to 1976. He partners with Austro-Canadian industrialist Walter Wolf. He partnered with him because two sponsors fell through. Unfortunately, what happens is when Wolf purchases the team, Frank Williams becomes an employee, not a part owner. So he works as an employee until he decides to leave in 1977. He left to form Williams Grand Prix Engineering with his co-founder, Sir Patrick Head, which we're going to talk about here in a minute. And what unfortunately has become such a pivotal part in his history is the fact that he led that team from 77 to 1986 and then in 1960. 86, he suffered a horrible spinal injury after leaving the Paul Ricard circuit right before the 1986 season. What is so unfortunate is that that part, that accident has become so ingrained in his history. When I think the bigger story is that after his accident, Sir Frank Williams didn't stop. He didn't slow, slow down. He didn't change his ways. He was just as committed to running the team. And so from that accident, he, you know, pushes through the the initial recovery, not easily, you know, it was kind of discussed in the Virginia Williams book, but he pushes through that and he still continues to lead the team up until he hands over the reins in 2012 to his daughter, Claire Williams. This is where I'm going to take a moment to plug that Virginia Woolf. The Virginia Woolf is an author, Virginia Williams book, because she really focuses on how life was outside of F1. It's about F1. They reference F1. They talk about what's happening. They talk about how she had to deal with it. But really, I think she is ultimately like the silent hero in Williams. Like Sir Frank Williams is the reason it exists and it has a legacy. But Virginia Williams is the silent hero. She is the reason it kept going because she was his primary caretaker and that was her role in the team and so highly recommend the book highly 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 recommend like taking the time to read it and you know learn about it 
Um, I want to do like a full deep dive on her one day um, for the podcast. But ultimately, he has a horrible accident in 86, returns to lead the team, and then leads the team through their success in the, the, the early 90s, middle of the 90s, and then would continue to lead the team even in the, the struggles in the 2000s up until, like I said, he gave it over to Claire Williams. Here is where we need to introduce Sir Patrick Head, who was his co-founder. He is often not spoken about a lot. In fact, in most of the stories about Williams and talking about their original foundation, they kind of skip over him quite a bit. They mention him, they talk about him, but they don't really mention how integral he was to it. And that's kind of sad, but I think it rightfully so, you know, he's not the not rightfully so, that sounded bad. Like, I think it makes sense because Sir Frank Williams has become such a legend of the sport. Nonetheless, um, let's talk about him because I think his story is really interesting. So he actually decided had the, decided against joining the Royal Navy and he graduated from University College London with a degree in mechanical engineering. After that, he left school to join the chassis manufacturer Lola, which is where he meets Williams. And then in 76, Williams approaches him to lead the development of the future Williams Grand Prix engineering. So brings him on. They co-found Williams Grand Prix engineering. And then in 1978 is when the, the first car that Patrick had designed, the FW6, makes its race debut. So he was like designing the first Williams that would then lead them to success and ultimately, you know, their first Grand Prix victory in 1979 at Silverstone. Gotta love that. A British team winning their first race at Silverstone. Nonetheless, he was there throughout the 1980s and the 1980s success. He, um, in the early 1980s success, working alongside Sir Frank Williams. In the 80s, he would move into a little bit different role. He actually like, kind of created this role within Williams. As a founder, I think you can just do things like that, which is crazy. But he moved into more of like the technical director role where he saw oversaw much more of like the design process, construction, racing and testing. And he really was like the one to bring it all together. Um, he actually is the one that kind of came up with that stupid or wonderful idea of the six wheel Formula One car that never actually like <laughs> went anywhere. But that was all him, which I just think is so funny every time I think about that. The fact that we could see, like, just imagine if, you know, Mercedes showed up with the six-wheel car. We'd all laugh. In In 1986, after the accident, he was forced to assume a lot of more control ownership of the team until um, Williams was able to return. And here's where it gets spicy. And I'm so excited to talk about this. In 1990, Patrick Head was the guy that hired engineer Adrian Newey. Yep, yep, yep. He's here. He was at Williams long before he was at McLaren and long before he was at Red Bull. So he actually formed a really excellent partnership with um, Patrick Head and they designed outstanding cars. They had five constructor titles. They built cars that allowed like Mansell Prost, um, Damon Hill, Jacques Villeneuve to win constructors. But ultimately, Newey would leave for McLaren and ultimately Red Bull. We're going to put a pin in that because we're going to come back to Adrian Newey. So just get prepared for that. But that's where I'm going to leave that. Ultimately, later on, um, Head would move into a role of director of engineering. And then in December of 2011, he would actually step down from the board of engineers, which leads, segues perfectly into Claire Williams. These are all the names you need to know. 
We're going through the heavy hitters. So Claire Williams, she joined the team in an official role. She started out working in the communications office. In 2012, she was appointed to the board and her position was commercial and marketing director before she would take over the day-to-day operations in 2013 as the deputy team principal, which is wild to think in 2013, you have a female deputy team principal. She is arguably the most powerful woman on the grid at that time. You know, she was the successor to Sir Frank Williams. She was leading her own team as a female. So I think it's important to give her the massive props for that and being able to navigate like the good old boys club, which is what we always know that, which is what we always talk about F1 being. Unfortunately, after some years that we already mentioned, I won't go back through the terrible statistics. In 2020, the team was sold to Dorrington Capital. Dorrington Capital is a private investment firm And so that ended 43 years of the Williams family and really Sir Sir Frank Williams' control after 739 Grand Prix starts. Yeah, it was incredible. It's a lot of Grand Prix. After nine championships, after nine constructor championships, after seven drivers' championships, after 43 years, it all is over. Claire Williams would step down shortly after that. Her last race that she oversaw was the 2020 Italian Grand Prix at Monza. And I think, I think like her words are the best words for this. She said, my family has always put our racing team and our people first. And this was absolutely the right decision. I know. And then we have found the right people to take Williams back to the front of the grin while also preserving the Williams legacy. And that's what takes us to talking about their current ownership. Dorrington Capital LLC is a New York-based private investment firm. Every time I learn about a new one of these investment firms, I'm like, there's more of you? How many of there are you? There's so many of you. Is there really that many things to invest in? The answer is, fuck yes. Dorrington came in, they purchased the team with the aim of restoring the F1's team competitiveness. Williams had really fallen on financial problems compounded by the fact that they're at the back of the grid. And if you're at the back of the grid, you get less of the TV rights money and less of the like championship dollars. That can combined with a lack of sponsorship because if you're not at the front of the grid if you're not performing no one's seeing the logo you're getting less tv time if your logos aren't being seen then teams are going to back out it's like a never-ending cycle that williams was stuck in where they like had poor performance they were losing sponsorships poor performance more sponsorships leave because you need the sponsorship dollars to be successful this was all compounded by COVID 19 really putting a damper on things for them financially So Dorrington Capital has plenty of money because that's what investment firms have. They step Mm -hmm. in and really the goal was to bring back like the, the legacy of the team to build back this, this British racing team with the legacy of 43 years of, you know, control by the family of nine championships, seven drivers championships. They wanted to bring back that legacy and ultimately gain sports value, sports entertainment value, which would ultimately translate to revenue for the capital, the the investment firm. Wild in here. Now let's talk about who even is Dorrington Capital. Okay. So there's Matthew Savage. He's the chairman, co-founder, 
But their hedge fund manager that they work with, this is where we have our royal connection. And this is where I'm very intrigued that I've missed this for God yeah. knows how many years. Megan, like, freaked out when she found out. How did I miss this? I think because I just kind of don't care about the royal family. But now I do care because this is some hot piping tea. So James Matthew, husband of Pippa Middleton. Yes, sister to Kate Middleton, the future queen. He's the CEO of Eden Rock. And Eden Rock is an investment advisory firm that literally works with Dorrington Capital. So during like Dorrington Capital is well, William's F1 team. Let's go with that. William's F1 team is basically run by by the future Queen of England's brother-in-law. And it gets even crazier with him. He's a former British racing driver. Yep, they never talked about that in the tabloids. Never knew that. He's a co-founder of Eden Rock, this advisory firm that, you know, huge. Again, another investment company that I'm like, wait, there's more of you? I don't understand. He won the Euro Cup Formula Renault series in 1994. Great year. And like I said, he's married to the future Queen of England's sister. It's also wilden that she's never seen at races. Is he even at races? I would, if I was him, I'd be at all of them. I would be at every single one, but he probably has other obligations. I have no I idea. I don't know how that works. Yeah. Who knows? I mean, I feel like if you're a CEO, you can pretty much do whatever the fuck you want. I.e. Lawrence Stroll. <laughs> but no, it's just wild to me that this like investment company purchase a formula one team and suddenly you're like and there's a royal connection and he's a british racing driver it's just reminds me that it's a very small world that i'm unfortunately not intricately a part of nonetheless it was purchased like the whole goal of them was to bring it back but it was also you know to make them part of this like giant investment company as a global brand williams is like one of their assets in their very large portfolio. I won't go through the whole thing. Um, but they're really committed to bringing like cutting edge innovation and teamwork and um, back into the racing industry. And they're committed to doing that. And they're committed to doing that behind their CEO, Jost, which like I said, weird dude, weird dude. And the reason I can fully say weird dude, weird dude is because if you haven't heard the squeezes ball story, you probably... Haven't been Are, paying attention. Yeah, you're missing out if you haven't heard the squeezes ball story. He literally told, like, okay, let's set the scene. His driver has lost confidence in rallying. So he tells the performance coach, did you squeeze his balls? I'm sorry. I don't think that's allowed. I think that's sexual harassment. Nonetheless... Guess what happens? A couple of seconds later, he asks the guy, did you squeeze his balls? And the guy says, yeah. And then his response is, okay, now you've got balls. Go for it. I'm sorry. And this man's allowed to lead a Formula One team? I don't know how this makes me feel internally. I Part of me is like, that's weird as hell. And the other part of me is like, that's weird as hell. <laughs> and then the other part of me is like, 
That's weird as, as hell. hell. I am just, first off, I can't believe that no one in PR was like, stop telling this story. This is not a good look. Second off, this man is allowed to leave a Formula One team. And third off, has someone told Jost that maybe he should tell Nicholas Latifi's performance coach? To grab his balls. Yeah. But then I, then I circle back to, that is sexual harassment and not okay. Yeah. Also, does Nicholas Latifi even have balls? Because that is I don't rude. Think he does. That's rude. I don't think we're allowed to say that. All right. Sorry. I mean, but does he? <laughs> okay. Thank you. All right. Capito has never asked somebody to squeeze his balls. I don't I was know. This ner- is a lot. We're talking way too much about balls on this podcast. Hashtag stay dirty. But. <laughs> I'm just a little overwhelmed by the man that's leading Williams F1 racing. He, okay, let's take it back. Let's talk about Jost a little bit. Yeah, I, just I feel like tell me I, about him, please. For like 20 minutes of recording this, I've been waiting and I've had so much anxiety about this story. Like, I literally, this story about this man gives me so much anxiety. So I'm sorry if I'm just like overwhelmed by it. But every time I think about it, I'm mentally overwhelmed. As you should he, be. In the mid-70s, was racing motorbikes. I don't know what that says about him, but that's where his story begins in my mind. He spent five years at BMW, then he took a position in the Volkswagen Group. He joined the Porsche Racing di- Porsche Porsche Racing. Sorry, Porsche, you can't join F1 because I can barely pronounce your name. Porsche. 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 That's even harder yeah. for me to say. Porsche. <laughs> racing division then he spent some time at sauber then he went to ford he worked in formula ford f1 with jordan he worked in the world rally championships he led the team to victory in world rallying in 2006 and 2007 then he went back to volkswagen then he was at mclaren then he went back to volkswagen and now he's at williams so he's bopped around a lot i'm wondering if his like, if all of that bopping around was trying to find, like, a break in F1. But that also begs the question, like, how long is he going to be at Williams? I don't know. So there's just, like, a lot with this man that I don't know what to think about. There's really a lot with, like, Dorrington Capital and Capito that there's just for me to think about. We got a royal connection and we got a CEO talking about squeezing balls. And that's how I'm going to conclude the deep dive on Williams history. I, I don't even know. This this whole section started out at like a high. Like, oh, Sir Frank Williams, a legacy. And I'm ending it on balls. Hashtag stay dirty, baby. Hashtag stay dirty. All right. Let's move on, shall we? Away from. Oh, please. Megan and I had really no trouble determining what the. 2022 main topic section, whatever we want to call this next conversation, because we all know what we need to talk about. And if you don't, I'm about to tell you, and it's what does Williams need to do to be successful? Well, if you ask me, it has nothing to do with balls. Enough. You're not allowed to say balls another time. I'm, I can say it as many times as I fucking want. Okay, fine. <laughs> when the CEO of the team says some shit like this, I can say whatever I want. Not really, but still. I am not a CEO of a company. I don't think CEOs are allowed to say shit, so I'm really confused. 
Yeah. Also, you're exact. I'm gonna just bring it back for just just a second. I know we moved on, but you're exactly right. Why has no one from the PR team told him to stop? I mean, Katie, the ball story is just as uncomfortable as when he like on live television, if you can call it live television, in their announcement. Basically, it was like I had to keep Nicholas Latifi around because he likes Nutella and I like Nutella. That is seared into my memory, which segues perfectly into number one of what do Megan and Katie think Williams need to do to be successful? Numero uno is ditch Latifi. Ditch Latifi. Done. Hasta la pasta. So you might be wondering why they haven't really done this before. Megan hinted at it earlier, but all in all, it's a little tricky to do so. So... It may also just be more simple, more, I just hit myself in the eyeball, I apologize. <laughs> it Sorry, might just we're be... overwhelmed by what we've just spoken about. <laughs> it might just be simpler to keep him rather than trickier to get rid of him because, as Megan said, Michael Latifi, the father of Nicholas and the owner of Sofina Foods, came on board as a major title sponsor to the Williams team back in 2020, which essentially opened the door for Nicholas to join F1. So his involvement effectively saved Williams from going under. And as we are calling Michael Latifi, Sofina Foods money bags, even put up an offer for the team and almost pulled a Papa Stroll, but did not. However, here's the big however and the big but. With Latifi failing to score points and oftentimes costing more money than he is bringing in, Dorrington could look to end its partnership with Sofina, thus ending Latifi's career. I don't think first they need... I don't think they need the Sofina money. <laughs> yeah. We can find money. I'll find money for them elsewhere. I will sit on the side of the street and collect dollars for them. I know that will not get them where they, they need to be. They don't need it. They have they have Pippa Middleton's yeah. army of Eden Rock. They have Dorrington Capital. They have Matthew Savage. Great name, by the way. I secretly think that man's a vampire with that name as the CEO or the chairman of I don't know the difference between CEO and chairman. It, to me, it sounds bullshitty and like unnecessary. But nonetheless, Matthew Savage, the CEO and co-founder, they don't need the Sofina Foods money. Look, I'd like to add a third point here, Katie. Okay. I truthfully think that the reason they couldn't get rid of him was because they didn't actually know how bad he was. Until this year. Until this year, because he's hidden behind George Russell. He George Russell was always the shiny new object for them. That, mm-hmm. that was eventually going to get picked off by Mercedes. It, nobody really thought he was that bad because you have... I mean, they ended P8 last year in the constructors. So it wasn't like a total dumpster fire of the year. But now... That Russell's out and he's up against a new teammate. You know, Nicholas Adifi should be the veteran of Williams. Alex Albon was out last year. He should have been performing this year. And he just, he hasn't been. Albon has out-qualified him every time but once, the British Grand Prix. And really, I think that was a lot to do with timing for Alex and the fact that Nicholas Adifi got really lucky in warming up his tires when no one else couldn't. And then he out He's been outperformed by Alex Albon at every race but Spain. 
His best result is 12th and Albon's is 9th. Literally, let me pull the stats. His average qualifying is 19th compared to Alex Albon's 15th. And that 18, I'm sorry, I said that wrong. Latifi's is 19. If you factor in his P10, which would skew them, that's pretty freaking amazing. If you take that out, he qualifies average. He qualifies an average place of 19th. If you look at the average race result, Alex Albon is averaging a finish in 12th and Latifi's in 15th. He's literally crashed a shit ton of times. He crashed twice in Jeddah. He crashed with Stroll in Australia, which ultimately was found to be Lance's problem. And then in Monaco, he crashed behind the safety car, which I get was probably the car's issue because of the throttle. But you crash behind a safety car. That's pretty fucking embarrassing, bro. It's it's just time. I don't want to see his face. I don't want to see his name anymore. I'm sorry if that's rude, but I'm over it. And what's crazy is that this, you know, desire to get Latifi out has only really become apparent this year. Like, we all didn't think he was great the last two years, but it wasn't this big conversation. There wasn't rumors that he was going to be replaced midway through the season like there are this year. It has become like the floodgates of making fun of Latifi and asking for him to leave F1 have just opened now that Russell's gone and he's compared to essentially what you would call like his rookie for Williams teammate, rookie-ish teammate. He should be outperforming Albon, but this year has been dominated by Latifi saying that he's not confident in the car. And I'm sorry, that's not good. Not a good enough excuse for what we have seen. I'd also like to take a moment to realize that Valtteri was pulled up from Williams to Mercedes. So George Russell is the second Williams driver to be on the like Williams to Mercedes pipeline. Valtteri was brought up to replace Nico Rosberg. I don't know why I laugh every time I say that dude's <laughs> name. To replace Rosberg after he retired. So it will be interesting. I think that Latifi will truly be replaced by another like placeholder that will eventually get pulled up to Mercedes because Albon won't go to Mercedes. He's too in bed with Red Bull, which for better or worse for Albon. Which is a great segue, Megan. Great job to talk about who could even replace Nicholas Latifi. Who are our options? There's three names. There's three names. There's probably, there's more, but I think there's three like that have been legitimate rumors this year. Let's first start with Oscar Piastri. There was a huge rumor, huge, huge, I mean, tons of articles were written about this, that he was potentially going to replace Latifi mid-season. I don't think that's going to happen. Latifi has pretty much been like, that's not going to happen. I don't really know if I believe anything that he says, though, about this. But ultimately, I think with everything that's going on with Piastri, <laughs> Again, I'm just laughing because that makes me so that whole situation with Piastri, Alpine and McLaren makes me uncomfortable. I don't think that it's going to be it's going to be Piastri that fills that spot. So that leaves two other names. We have Logan Sargent and we also have Nick DeVeers. Logan Sargent is an American. I would love, love, love to see him on the grid next year because I'd love to see an American on the grid. He um, won the feature race at Silverstone, if you remember. He, in F2, it was the first time an American had won. And he's had four, so far, he's had four podiums this year. He also won in Austria. He's considered a standout. And I think he's, 
a good possibility because he's going to have an FP1 appearance at CODA. So we'll actually get to see him at FP1. But the other name that is around is Nick DeVeers, who actually this weekend finished his Formula E season. Mercedes Formula E team won the championship and his teammate Stoffel Van Dorn won as well, the drivers. It's unfortunate that, um, you know, he ends his time at Mercedes Formula E team on not a great note for him personally, but it was awesome that his team actually won the championship. And I wouldn't be surprised if he takes the spot at Williams as a potential future option for Mercedes after Hamilton leaves, because Mercedes is definitely looking to post 2023. Not that I think that Lewis is going to, Lewis doesn't know if he's going to be done at the end of 2023. I think that it's all going to be dependent on like, does he still want to fight? Does he still want to be an F1? Does he want to be, it, it, does that want to be where his like focus is? But I, I do think that there is a lot of conversation at Mercedes about how do we get our next, you know, driver potentially lined up to be on the grid and start getting some years because I don't, they won't, I know, would they ever pull up a rookie? No, don't see that happen. So that's kind of where we are. I don't, I mean, I am heavily rooting for Logan Sargent, but I'm also heavily rooting for Nick DeVeres. It's very weird. And I swear if Daniel Ricciardo ends up at Williams, I'll cry. Oh my God. Don't say that again, ever again. (laughs) Do not say that ever again. I just got a flashback of that man in that car and I did not like it at all. I don't know. Ultimately, I think the second part of this is the most important part of this. And I'm, and I'm, I truly believe that they obviously need a good driver in that seat, but more importantly, they need a good head of aerodynamics. They need someone to push Williams in the direction of developmental success. They have a Mercedes engine. They have a contract with Mercedes, but I'm calling this, they need a new Newey. They need a new Adrian Newey. They're never going to find a replacement Newey because Newey is just like one of a kind. We're going to, I want to walk through kind of his success here real quickly, but um, they definitely need someone with like a massive, that's where they need to be investing their dollars. Maybe Nicholas Latifi's dad can buy an aerodynamics engineer for them. Before they kick out Nicholas Latifi. Yeah. Good idea. Joe's take a pick, take, take a look at a Haas's rule book. See, see, see how they, you know, kept the money around until they got what they needed and they ditched them. But Nicholas don't do horrible things like Nikita Mazepin. Yeah. No, Fine line there. Nonetheless, let's take a second to talk about Adrian Newey, because I think in talking about him, you'll realize why I think that Williams needs a new Newey. He is a former Williams employee. Um, like I said, he was a part of Williams. He was brought on by Patrick Head and was honestly like a massive part of why Williams found success. Um, he was the chief designer during the early to mid 1990s when Williams was winning like everything. And he left Williams to go to McLaren and then left McLaren to go to Red Bull. The question is, is why the hell did they lose him in the first place? Well, in 1993, Adrian signed a contract extension with a clause that said that he would be allowed in major decisions about drivers. That didn't happen. And then they and then Williams was like, it will happen. It won't happen again. We're so sorry. My bad. Oopsies. And then in 1995, he signed another contract extension that allowed him to be integral in the conversations about drivers, engines, and technical battles. 
In 96, Villeneuve was signed without Nui being consulted. And when Nui was like, yo, bro, why'd you do that? Without consulting me, my contract says you have to. They're like, you were on vacation. My B. Ultimately, I think the breaking point was what happened after that when they dropped the contract with Damon Hill and they decided to sign Heinz Harold Frensen again without Nui knowing. So twice they were like, oops, my B won't happen again. Then his good friend, Damon Hill, loses his contract to an, another driver. And Nui's like, peace out. I'm done. Ultimately, Nui would say that in his book, he would say no more decisions. Ma-. Like at that point, he was like, no more decisions over lunch need to be made without my involvement. And he was promised that they would no longer make decisions where he wasn't at the table. And that didn't happen twice. And so he said, I'm done. There was a massive rumor that part of the reason he left was because he asked to actually purchase shares and was denied. In 2012, Frank Williams said that Nui wanted shares and one of his biggest mistakes was not agreeing to offer him and like let him buy in and have a seat at the table. Nui would go on to say that he had loved, you know, being at Williams, but um, there wasn't room for a third person at the table. And so... You know, he wasn't a part of the decision-making table. He wasn't a part of the actual conversation. He was denied shares, and then he ultimately left. He would leave after 97, which is the last time that Williams won a championship. He joined McLaren for 98 and 99, which would see Mika Heikkinen win. So clearly, in the beginning, Nui was knowing the things. Then he would literally go on to find success at Red Bull. Nui was at Williams for the championships of Hill, Mansell, Prost, and Villeneuve. So I think that's proof that they need a new Nui right there. They need someone who is going to be a aerodynamic genius and bring them success. And they need to find one quickly. All right. Next up on why... The reasons why Megan and I think Williams can do things to succeed is to keep Alex Albon. You've got a strong, steady driver who has just signed a multi-year contract to stay through 2024. And while I, like we mentioned earlier, while I do hope there is an opportunity for Albon to grow into another spot, I think that would be a lock in the bag to see success and work their way into the midfield with keeping him on that team and keeping that relationship that I mentioned earlier that Capito talked about, about him being able to communicate with the team and get what he needs as a driver, but also give the team what they need as a driver, as a team. They got to keep him. They got to keep him. They can't lose him to AlphaTauri or Red Bull. They can't have to keep and I think a lot of his success comes from taking that year off and having to mentor Yuki I think he learned a lot off track that is not his success on track last but not least number four and arguably I think the most important part is they need to keep their financial backer they can't be a part of F1 without the money and so all of this is contingent upon the new ownership Dorrington Capital and Dorrington Capital providing them the resources financially to be able to hire someone like Nui to keep Albon around, um, maybe to keep Capito around. I'm really not sure. I haven't really fully baked my thoughts on whether or not I think he is going to be like the linchpin in their success or not. I don't think he's been around enough. 
I mean, granted, he's been here for a bit, but still. I don't know. I just, he's weird dude. Weird dude. Weird dude. Weird dude. Let's not go over there again, but weird dude. I mean, ultimately, Katie, like, do you think that Williams can find success? Because I, my answer is I think they're just a midfield team, and they will be just a midfield team for the next four or five years. I frame it as they can find success within the midfield. Because right now, they are a bottom team for me. Uh, yeah, they're yeah. totally in the bottom. So if that's – if sorry if that's what you meant by that of, like, they can find success in the midfield, then I agree with you. And I can see them competing with the Alphataris, maybe the McLarens, but – we need to see the we need to see the Megan and Katie plan put into place. You need to find a new newie, and then I think maybe you know in it, five years they could find success. I would love to see them be like a best of the rest team, but that'd be nice. I don't. I'd know be alright with that if that's going to happen. It is time to wrap up this episode, and that means we need to go through the reasons why you should be a fan of Williams. I think number one, first and foremost, is truthfully just full stop the Williams legacy. Sir Frank Williams is one of the greats, one of the reasons why F1 has such a rich history. So if you're not learning about him, if you're not taking the time to study him, read about him, learn about the Williams history, I don't know what you're doing in the summer break. Pick a book. Read about Williams. Pick a documentary if you don't like to read, but take the time to like invest in learning more about the team. It's really interesting. His passion for the sport is unparalleled. I, I don't think I've ever read about somebody in history who is so passionate about something. So that was really cool to to get to study him. Number two, Claire Williams, one of the few women who has been in that much power on the grid. And I'll say it, I miss her. I miss seeing, I said it earlier, I miss seeing her around. I miss having that female energy on track. And I hope that one day we get a book written by Claire Williams on her experience as the lead of the Williams team. Totally support that. I want a book about her. I want a book by her about her. I want her to tell her own story. And then third is, and I have to put this up here. I do. I think you have to support Williams for the Williams to Mercedes pipeline. It brought us the likes of Valtteri Botas at Mercedes. And now it has brought us George Russell at Mercedes. So I think it is, um, it'll be interesting to see if they pick another driver that is eventually going to be on the like Williams to Mercedes pipeline. And I'd like to see that, you know, driver, like, learn and be a rookie and take, you know, learn how to be an F1 driver there. I do think that's, like, a, an interesting part about Williams. I like to, even though they might not be at the front of the pack, like, you know, comparing the teammates is interesting. And so I would like to see, you know, if they bring in a new name, a new rookie that, you know, watching them grow part, paired with Al, Albon, yes, but not really for, our, you know, the the team the teammate mentality, but more to see like how a potential future Mercedes driver um, has their first couple of years. 
And finally, reason number four, why be a fangirl? Why be a fanboy? Why be a fan person? All of the above. They're the great underdogs. There's no real reason why you should be rooting against them. You should be rooting for them. We, we love Williams. We support them. We want to see them do well. And you know what? Maybe one day we just might. Yo, you got to support them when they make it to Q3. A Q3 yes. performance is as great as a win for them in my book. Up next, we are recapping the season thus far. Check out next week's episode, The Mid-Season Recap, where we discuss all the drama so far and where the drivers stand in the championship and really where Katie and I think the drivers stand, because that's more important. Thank you so much for listening to another episode. Don't forget to subscribe and follow us at Dirty Driving Pot on Twitter and Instagram. Until next time, stay dirty.